Uh, Emily and I have been going through a little bit of withdrawal ever since uh, Downton Abbey went off the air. <laughs> We've tried to fill it with uh, Victoria, uh, the Queen. They're, they're, they're sort of second, second place to uh, Downton Abbey. Um, Emily was telling some wives the other day, she said, my husband doesn't really watch sports. He, uh, he watches Downton Abbey with me. So I feel like I've got to make up for it tonight. I'm going to watch the Super Bowl tonight. I'm going to try to watch the whole thing. I, gotta, I do have a man card. <laughs> but uh, Downton Abbey had this character named Carson. Do you remember Carson? He was the butler. And, um, you know, uh, Car- Carson, you might, what, what I love about that show is it sort of showed you the upstairs, showed you the royal or the, the, the lord and his wife, but then down below you got to see these people who ordinarily in shows previous you wouldn't have known who they were. But you get to see the life of this man, Carson, who was this really diligent steward. He was, he was the butler. And you kind of think of a butler, you think of someone who just drives or maybe they open the door a couple of times and they sort of scurry off. But uh, we saw in Carson, we saw that a butler was much more than that. He stewarded the whole household. He was in charge of finances. He had a broad range of authority. He was given charge of all the staff. He was, and what I loved about him was he was confident, right? He was competent, he was confident, and he was equitable. He stood in contrast to Spratt. You remember Spratt? He was this kind of busybody butler, always nosing into other people's business, and he was always suspicious. You see, Carson, his whole life revolved around serving his master well. His, he scheduled vacations around this relationship. He ordered his entire private life around his master and his master's wishes. He even took into consideration his marriage. You see, Lord Crowley trusted him. And at the onset of this morning's passage, Paul uses a word different than simply servant. He uses a word that means steward. It is diakonoi. It is much more than just a servant or a a butler. This, this, This word was used to describe someone who was entrusted to manage an estate. They were entrusted to look after the estate in every respect, all of their time, their energy, their resources. They centered around one thing, the master's desire. Paul says, stewards of this great mystery of God, stewards that are trustworthy. Twice he uses this word to communicate the weight of stewardship of the gospel and of the responsibility and authority that God has given him. It's a sobering reality, right? To be a steward, not just of a a manor in the English countryside, but of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look at three aspects of this uh, passage this morning. And I want to view them in light of stewardship, this, this idea of stewardship. So I might be jumping around a little bit. You can follow in, I think it's 1133 is the Pew Bible. Um, the first aspect of good stewardship is, uh, is, is, or the first aspect is really just looking at what good stewardship looks like. The second is whose kingdom, this is a question I'll be asking, whose kingdom are we stewarding? Whose kingdom are you stewarding? And then third and finally, I'll be looking at 
stewardship with the aim of restoration. You see, the good steward is not concerned with with what others think about him. He knows that ultimately his judge, his ultimate judge is the Lord. Public opinion does not matter. What matters is what God says about you and your stewardship of his interests. In verses 3 through 5, Paul is dealing with a faction of the church which has called into question his authority. He's not talking about a legal court. He's not talking about a moral issue, right? Because he's going to deal with moral issues. You're going to see Paul deal with moral issues head on in chapter 5 and elsewhere. But rather, he's talking about what a mob of people think about him or think about the way he teaches. And his response is basically this. I don't care how you view me. What matters is what the Lord thinks of me. And whether I am stewarding his word well, stewarding those under my care well. You see, uh, we live in a day and age where social media thinks that the world cares about what we are doing every minute of every day. We share our opinions 10 times a day with the world. We air our opinions and grievances. Someone called Facebook the other day the Christmas letter that you write every morning. Right? We see this among the Christian community. They, they feel this need to have an opinion about every preacher, every pastor, every erroneous teaching. That pastor said, what? I'm going to show, I'm going to go onto Facebook and tell the world what I think of him. The good steward is careful in not judging others' motives. A few weeks back, um, a group of Catholic high school Uh, young men traveled to Washington, D.C. for the March for Life event, which was, uh, you know, it's been an annual event to support uh, the unborn being killed, murdered in the womb. And um, these young men, some of them were wearing these uh, red Make America Great Again hats that were trademarked by the Trump campaign. This, this one young man, he found himself the center of attention because he was wearing this hat and there was this Native American man who was beating this drum and, and people said the young man was smirking and he was racist. You see, D.C. is like this highway intersection of protesting every single thing you could ever imagine. So there was every kind of group there. And so the young man was just standing there didn't know what to do. And, and, and Christians, some prominent pastors, they, they looked at this 15-second clip and they began to say that this young man was a racist. One pastor said, let's be, let's be clear. This isn't simple hate. It's demonic activity. But others suggested that he was a, a white supremacist. These weren't just people in the progressive left. These were pastors of congregations theologians, Christian college professors, some of whom who I have great respect for. But when the fuller video came out, it became clear that the 15 seconds that we all saw was out of context. But by the time these pastors could retract what they had already tweeted out, it was too late. It had been shared with millions of people, and this young man became the center of all kinds of vile rhetoric 
World Magazine wrote about this in an article called Joining a Mob. Let me read to you what the author said. She said, The church need not overly concern itself with what secular media outlets got wrong or the disgusting calls for violence that resulted. But we should ask why so many blue check believers, not to mention their hundreds of thousands of followers, were so eager to join an outrage mob against a child based on so little information. Even further, why were so many willing to extend that condemnation to the child's parents, teachers, and his school? She goes on to say, no matter how great our desire to show remorse for past and present collective sins, we can't let our emotion run away with our discernment. Hot takes should be anathema to people charged to be slow to anger and slow to speak. The reconciliation of tomorrow won't stand if it's built on the lies of today. Paul says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Snap judgments of motives, mob opinion, not just on high school Catholic seniors, but pastors, teachers. It can be destructive to the Christian community. It can be damaging to the body of Christ. I think as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should take our social media stewardship seriously. There is an online community. Maybe we need to just leave it. I'd be happy if we all left it. But if you're going to engage, we need to understand the weight of that. The second point I want to make is I want to ask this question, whose kingdom are you stewarding? Okay, so one of my favorite websites is the Babylon Bee. It is, I think, the best of Christian satire today. Here are some of my favorite headlines. Man reminds himself he's sharing in Christ's sufferings after Facebook post gets zero likes. (laughs) I'll read you a gem from from that article. Every time someone ignores or unfriends me, it hurts. Sure, but then I remember how many people unfriended Jesus, said the bold martyr, adding that he's just trying to focus on the eternal weight of glory God was preparing for him through his trial. This is the second one here. Christian bravely questioning biblical doctrine, persecuted with book deal and interviews. This one actually names names, so it might make me guilty of my first point. And then this, this third one, this might be my favorite. American believer suffers brutal persecution in form of occasional ribbing from coworkers. Here's how the piece begins. It says, at a recent summer picnic, the brave martyr is said to have told an intern from accounting that he goes to church on Sundays, reportedly earning him a withering verbal beating as the intern was seen persecuting Beezer with harsh words like, oh, so you're one of those Bible thumpers. And hope you're not one of those holy rollers, bees, followed by a friendly slap on the back. This is, this is satire, right? It's, it's sarcasm. So sometimes this is used to wake us up. And this is uh, designed to give us a perspective, to make us aware of our insular lives, perhaps our anemic faith. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in verses 8 through 13. He's using sarcasm. So Paul would approve of the Babylon Bee, I think. 
He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. He is using a a shovel of sarcasm to dig up the hard soil of pride in the Corinthian church. You see, prideful stewardship puts me at the center where the Lord Jesus ought to be. A prideful stewardship puts my needs above the needs of others. A prideful stewardship puts my comfort above our stewardship of, Lord, of, our, of our Lord's kingdom call to die to self, to take up our cross. And then he, he doubles down on this uh, sarcasm in verses 9 through 13. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our, hand, our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The, the, see, the juxtaposition between the two stewardships is stark here. One stewardship, that of the Lord, may make you appear as if you're a fool, The other may make you be viewed by the world as wise. One may give you the appearance of weakness, but the other may be viewed by the world as strength. And I use this word may because we do have to recognize that the church does go through different seasons. And the church in the West is not currently experiencing this kind of persecution or this degree of persecution that, say, maybe some in the Middle East or Asia are experiencing today. But I think if Paul were here today speaking to our 9 a.m. congregation here, he might be saying, consider that some are suffering for the name of Christ. This is a wake-up call to us. We enjoy Christian leadership conferences, large Christian prayer breakfasts where we herald the next big-name Christian to give us Christian principles We want athletes and CEOs and powerful people to help brand Christianity so we can sell more books, get more eyeballs. We want powerful people to validate what appears to be weakness. We have, as one of my philosophy professors calls it, Christian chicken. And this makes us proud of our Christian chicken. I like Chick-fil-A. It's okay. I, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing Chick-fil-A. I'm just saying sometimes we begin to take pride in the things that the Lord has blessed us with. And our hope is in that and not in Jesus. What if we did not have all this? What if we did not have our Christian chicken? What state would our stewardship be in if we were considered scum? Would we still steward Christ's mandate to preach if it meant we might go hungry, that our children might go hungry, that we might experience physical violence. Uh, Some of you know I spun off an organization last year called Help the Persecuted. 
Uh, this past week, we, we did our case review uh, meeting where we, we looked at about 30 cases. Uh, we looked at about 30 cases that range uh, from torture to loss of job this week. We had our team in the Middle East join us using Skype, and we reviewed these cases. One of the cases really hit me hard. Uh, it was the case of Mustafa. Uh, he was born as a Muslim in Syria. He was radically saved by a Christian minister in his town. The minister came. Mustafa said he saw the light of Christ on his face, and he was first attracted to this. The pastor shared the gospel with him, and he came to faith. And when he got saved, he couldn't contain it anymore. He was in a majority Muslim country, but he didn't care. Many times the secret police, the Muhabarat in Syria, would pick him up and they would put him in jail. And he would continue to go back to the church. And this is really hard for us to understand how this works. But when you're a convert from Islam, you just can't walk into an above-ground church. If you're born into a Christian home, an Assyrian, a Catholic, or whatever, uh, Coptic, or whatever the indigenous Christian population is, you can go to church as much as you want. But if you're born a Muslim, you cannot walk into that church. And so the police repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly kept taking him to jail. The war came to Syria. He was uh, actually bombed with a chemical bomb. He survived that. He moved to Turkey, fled to Turkey. You would think Turkey's kind of a moderate country. It's not. It's gotten really bad over the last decade. And as more Syrians and Iraqis and Muslims have uh, moved into Turkey, or radical Muslims have moved into Turkey, it's become a really unsafe place for Christians. He was regularly threatened in Turkey. He is regularly threatened in Turkey. He eats out of a dumpster. He lives in squalid conditions. He has major health issues. And just this past uh, two weeks ago, we have a picture, he was beaten up by this radical group. They wanted him to stop. They were tired of him. They were tired of him going to church. They were tired of him talking about it. He's lost his job. And I sat staring at this picture. And I said, would I, go to, would I continue coming here if it meant violence against me? Would I come into the walls of this church if there were men's with batons standing outside? You see, people talk about persecution in the West. I, I, it makes me sick. Yes, Cake bakers, I get it. But this is the reality for millions of Christians. 245 million to be exact. And for the most part, our Southern culture kind of celebrates the fact that we're all at church. Emily and I are going to pass probably three churches on the way home. We're all going to give each other thumbs up, pat each other on the back. Because this is what our culture says we should do. But I'm asking the question, would you come here? Would you steward what the Lord has given you if it meant violence against you? I was on a conference call with uh, the China Partnership the other day. This is a group of pastors, seminary professors, uh, church planters, ministry leaders who are doing work in China. 
And the, the conference call came in the wake of uh, Pastor Wang Yi's arrest in China. And about 80% of the call was just prayer. But at the back end of the call, they wanted to kind of go through some business and talk about what was happening in China. And one of the leaders said that the church members are scared. They don't know what to do. Should they, should they go to the church? The church had been, the, the secret police had come in. They had arrested this pastor. They're now putting him into a re-education camp. And the church members were saying, should we go? Should we continue our services? See, before Wang Yi was arrested, he had preached a sermon where he stood up in front of the congregation. He said, would our city miss us if we went missing? Would our town know that we were gone if we all of a sudden the secret police took us and we were gone? He didn't know that that would become a reality just a few short weeks after he preached that sermon. If God's kingdom consists of power, as the end of this passage says, why are we not seeing that in the West? I mean, we see uh, the stuff we hear in the Middle East, miracle after miracle after miracle. We're seeing the power of God's kingdom at work. And I wonder if the reason is found in this passage, deeper in the middle of this passage, which is that we are so prideful. We are so prideful and arrogant of the blessings God has given us rather than looking to him, the one who gives us the blessings, the one who is the seed of that power. The third part. And after that lashing, you're going to need this (laughs) because this is good news for all of us. This is the stewardship that seeks restoration. You see... There's a tendency to see everything I just said through the prism of shame. You know, this is the, the sort of get over your first world problem shame, right? That's not, that's not what I'm intending. And I don't think that's what Paul's intending. Paul does not want to shame them because God does not want to shame them. Our Lord is a God of restoration, not shame. Sometimes people come off the mission field and they just want to shame you. That's not, that's not a good exercise. It's unhelpful because that's not what God wants. Romans 2, 4, it is God's kindness that leads to repentance. Shame and staying in that shame is Satan's weapon of choice from keeping us being restored and restored to a right relationship. Something very important here. He, Paul moves, the metaphor moves from that of a steward to that of being a father. My beloved children, he says. You see, when my children are disobedient, it, it, it is not that I want them to wallow in shame. My desire is to see them realize what they've done, to repent and ask for forgiveness from me or forgiveness from one of their siblings, which is more often the case. I want to see them restored into a right relationship with me in trust and obedience. I want their posture to change. I want to break their wills, not their spirit. And the whole next section, verses 14 through 21, Paul is dealing here with the Corinthians and he's, he's referring to them as, uh, as himself as being their spiritual father. Model your life after me because I have modeled my life after Christ. You feel this sense of of him opening his arms to hug him. 
right? Not to smack them. If they'll let him. As I said, um, the, the passage begins with this metaphor of stewardship. It, it settles here on this image of fatherhood. There's perhaps no better metaphor than that of a parent and a child to explain a relationship of trust and love and correction. See, the Corinthians in verse 15, we learn that they had many instructors, they had many teachers. That's very different than a father. An instructor can only take you so far. Oh, but a father, a father is interested in a child's complete well-being. A teacher is not necessarily concerned with knowing his students intimately, is he or she? But that is a father's core desire to have intimacy with his children. Our church, the the global church, the Western church, is in an age where we have a lot of instructors. We have a lot of teachers. I could have typed in, and I did, I typed in 1 Corinthians 4 into Google, and I would get hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons. But those pastors, those teachers don't know me. They don't know what I need to hear in a specific moment in my life. We need fathers in the Lord. We need mothers in the Lord who are interested in our well-being, not just putting information into our brains. We need people who care about our very souls, who challenge us, who know when we need to be confronted with our sin and when we need a word of grace and mercy. You see, a teacher, not all of them, a teacher just wants to get a paycheck. You see, this series has kind of been principally focused on this idea of community. And let me challenge you this morning that that maybe we need to go beyond just teachers and gurus and listening to sermons, but maybe seek out mature fathers in the Lord. Seek out mature mothers in the Lord. We need spiritual parents. The the Lord may be calling you today to seek out that person, to come to the hub or to come to Wednesday night or to come to mom to mom. You see, we we cannot exist on mere teaching. We, We must have this type of relationship. Maybe you're the older, mature person. Maybe the Lord's calling you now to be that father for someone, to be that mother for someone. We need to move beyond just the consumption of sermons and material, and into relationship, into this body. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. And uh, if anything I have said is not of you, anything that was uh, perceived as guilt, I pray, Lord, that you would forget it in the minds of help these people to forget it. But Lord, if it's of you, I pray that it would be profitable and be used for your glory, that people would, where they have been errant, Lord, would they come back into a right relationship with you and a right relationship with the body of Christ. Lord, give us those fathers, those mothers in the Lord that we might live together in a way that is pleasing and a pleasing aroma to you.
We pray all this in Christ's name.